All right, we're back. Bob Agno. Another episode. Two guys in the cloud with um, a very, very special guest, uh, Jared Spitaro, Corporate Vice President of Microsoft 365. Jared, welcome. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, we're super excited. I um, And actually, the timing is, is really great. Bob and I uh, just came back from our, our first travels back to our headquarters. So it was it was wonderful actually to see Bob again. I it was we haven't seen each other in a year and a half. So that was outside of these moments. So that was great and came back home and flew back. I don't know, you know, I I live in Chicago, so I flew back and we have in the Chicago area this week um Lollapalooza, which is this very big musical festival and the whole flight was just kids, you know, flying into Lollapalooza. So I was just super excited to get home. And when, <laughs> when I got home this morning, I woke up and my son, who's 19, 20 years old, is in the kitchen, all excited, never gets up early. And and I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm excited. I go, well, why? He goes, Lollapalooza. He goes, you just don't understand. It's like Christmas. And I thought that we've lost everything. This is terrible. But it, it it was um it was great to get back home and and now I'm experiencing the hybrid life again and that is our segue so you know today I know that um, we're going to spend an awful lot of time talking about the hybrid workplace and how our world has changed so dramatically over the last year and a half and how we've we've evolved into just what is this moment in time when we're working remotely and then working back at our offices and what the implications are and all of this amazing stuff. Um, so Jared, we're, before we get into all that, um, I know that, you know, what we've done is given you a bit of a prep that um, our, our tradition here is to just sort of ask our guests to walk through their journey and their career and what got them where they are. And we have always, you know, Bob and I have always found this to be the most fascinating part because people end up in the tech space in the most interesting ways. And we'd love to hear your story if if you got a that moment. Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, um, I do have a story that's probably a little bit different than the traditional story. Uh, in college, as a kid, I always loved technology, always loved technology, and was one of those kids that learned to program as, you know, first using BASIC on a Commodore 64 was my first memories of like really engaging. Nice, nice. And when I went to college, I decided to study computer science. I loved it, um, really enjoyed it. The internet had not yet really broken through commercially when I first started college, you know, and so that gives you a sense of where we were. And in 1993, I took some time off from college to go be a Christian missionary and was assigned my, by my church to serve in New Zealand. But my job was to learn Chinese, to work with Chinese immigrants. So wow. during that two year period, you know, as a 19 year old kid, I learned to speak Chinese and learned all about the Chinese culture. And this was a time when people were kind of streaming out to a couple of countries, to, to New Zealand, to Australia and to Canada, which really welcomed Chinese immigrants at that time with open arms, had pretty liberal immigration policies. And then I went back to school and finished up my degree. So when I finished school, I kind of, you know, I was this unique person who spoke Chinese at that point, uh, spoke, read and wrote Chinese. and. Um, but also had a computer science degree. So I found a, an American startup that wanted to do business in Asia and um, at 24 moved over with my new wife and three month old little baby to uh, Beijing, China. So that's where I started my professional career. <laughs> 
and it was a great time. I um, my initial job really was to set up an offshore development center. So we hired all sorts of incredibly smart people there in the Beijing area to do some work for the startup. And at the same time, I started to do sales and marketing. So kind of saw both sides of the technology business, which was really great. Uh, worked there in China for a few years and really, I think, kind of was exposed to what today I would call the beauty of scrappy, innovative Chinese business. I mean, you know, today we see that, you know, it's a simple example. Zoom is a very run by Eric Yuan, very Chinese company. He's just a fantastic example. We have a ton of respect at Microsoft for him of how he runs his business. And I was exposed to that early on. It was very formative for me as a technology leader and as a business leader. Then I came back to the States, um, decided, gosh, I really like that business side of technology. I got an MBA and then uh, kind of um, weaved my way towards Microsoft. I worked in a couple of companies outside of Microsoft for a little while uh, and finally found my way into the SharePoint product group um, a little over 15 years ago. Um, and joined Microsoft and since that time have been very focused on this idea of um, first kind of productivity and you know how can we use technology to help businesses and people be more productive and now as I think we'll talk about today even more broadly than just productivity narrowly defined uh, really thinking about where does the economy go you know how is the, the economy changing right now with the impact of technology so I still keep my Chinese roots I you know speak read and write Chinese as much as I can and um, and today, you know, that allows me access to two of the biggest economies, perhaps the, the two biggest economies in the world. So it's good, good exposure for me. So that's my career journey. Amazing. I, um, I, I have to say, I'm always in awe of anybody that can pick up another language. I am. I, I just am woefully inadequate when it comes to that. You know, I, I, I if I pick up another dialect, I'm, you know, I mean, like another I don't know. I feel like I talk two languages, you know, just English and Chicago, you know, like the, the speak, you know what I mean? But I I just can't. I'm amazed that you can do that. You did it at such a young age is just <clears throat> tremendous. To me. That's that's fantastic. And I can see where the benefits are. So that's pretty cool. Um, How long did it take you to, to pick that up? Because I when I think about that, I think that would be very difficult if you were going to pick up a different language, pick up Chinese. How long did that take you to get fluent? You know, it took Chinese is hard <clears throat> to all the dear listeners out there. You know, <laughs> let me let there be a warning. Chinese is hard. It took a year before I could kind of converse in simple terms and really okay. understand. And then it took two years until I felt decently comfortable. And then it took, if I'm honest with you, another two years of immersion in China to feel like, all right, this is like a business language where man, I'm fine. So it, it took some time. And Chinese is one of these languages that has a very high activation energy. They talk about it in Chinese, they speak themselves of kind of it having a very high threshold to get into the language. But once yeah. you, it is a, you know, it's a beautiful language that has a lot of history to it. And so it kind of unfolds itself to, it's almost like walking into a cavern that's like, wow, a whole new yeah. world. <laughs> Yeah, you, you ever do that where you go into a restaurant and pretend that you don't speak Chinese or you meet somebody, and you, pretend <laughs> that, you know, and then all of a sudden you speak Chinese and they go, oh, my God, he can speak Chinese. Do you ever do you ever do anything like that? Yeah, I try not to do it now because, yeah, I mean, I, but but it does happen for sure. It happens. You know, there are a lot of people, a lot of foreigners who speak Chinese at this point. Back in the 90s, there were not. So it was definitely much more rare to be on the streets of, the streets of Beijing and, and speak Chinese. But 
These days, you know, around the United States, there are lots of Chinese immersion, immersion schools that people with no Chinese heritage go to. So yeah. it's yeah. much more common today. Very cool. Um, so I, I know that, you know, our, our big goal today is to talk about the hybrid, I'm going to say the workplace, hybrid workforce, you know, this new reality that we're in. And, I, you know, the more that I've read into it, the more I've learned about it, the more just fascinated I've become. Um, and I know that you have spent an awful lot of time in front of what Microsoft's research and thought process is. And so I'm looking forward to, to chatting about it. But really what we're talking about here is, you know, coming out of the pandemic, our world finds itself in a place where today's workforce is really toggling between working from home and or working at the office. And that provides a whole new landscape for us, just as society, employees, employers, and a number of challenges. And, um, you know, and I know it's a journey of a conversation, but where, where do you think the best place to start is? You know, like I, I have a couple thoughts, but where where do you think the best place to start? Well, I, you know, I have a lot of these conversations right now, as you can imagine, people are looking to Microsoft to have a point of view, and we do. Maybe we just start with our definition of hybrid. You started there with this idea of, you know, working right. in different places. Um, I'm, I might encourage us to take a step back and, and define hybrid a, a little bit more broadly. At, at Microsoft, after a couple of quarters of research now, we would define hybrid as as extreme flexibility. So I'll start there, this idea of flexibility being at its core and flexibility in particular on three dimensions, flexibility in how, when and where you work. And I think a lot of people think of hybrid as they, they can wrap their heads around flexibility, mostly around the, the idea of location. So where? But we would say, no, hybrid's actually a bit bigger than that. It is a concept that, I, that certainly includes the, the geographic location that you're in, the where, but it also includes includes work style, so how people will get work done. And, and I hope we get to this, you know, it, it demands new skills as an example. It's gonna require new patterns of work. And then in addition to that, even when you work, we think will be really important. During the pandemic, as an example, you know, we're able to, in an anonymized fashion, watch the telemetry and just see what's changing. Across the world, the workday pattern changed pretty significantly. In some, in some countries, the workday elongated by as much as two or more hours, so that's interesting. And in many countries, we definitely saw an elongation on the front end and the back end, but different activities in the middle as people needed to and decided to do things during the middle of the day. So hybrid isn't just working from home. It's this idea that, you know, I'm, I'm going to take two hours out of my day and go get a haircut, something I would have reserved for the weekend previously. But that pattern, you know, actually creates a difference in not only the way work will get done. Uh, I hope we get to this idea. It's going to affect the economy in really interesting ways as well. So there's some pretty deep economic things that are going on. Um, we believe that hybrid will have the most lasting impact out of almost everything that happened uh, coming out of the pandemic because it it has changed how people think about some key things. You know, and those internal changes have now been happening for a couple of months. We think they're going to manifest themselves externally in pretty surprising ways for a lot of people. But we can get into it. That's where I would start is that definition. Yeah, no, no, actually perfect. I um, and I appreciate that. I, I think it does help bring another prism to the conversation. So I think that's great. Um, one of the one of the expressions that, you know, I as I've read forward and and, you know, kind of gleaned um, what I think is interesting is this notion of digital exhaustion. You know, I had not heard that before until recently. 
And I think, you know, listening to you talk, I think I'm beginning to sort of connect the dots a bit, but I'm that, you know, can we double click into that? So when we talk about digital exhaustion, what are we talking about there? Well, uh, it was something that people started to feel very early in the pandemic. Um, it was often referred to in the media as Zoom fatigue. And so there was this sense of like, wow, you know, a lot of people switched, those who could switch to working from home remotely. And then all of a sudden we were on meetings and people felt more tired, like there was something going on. So early in the pandemic, we did some brain research where we actually did invite people back into a lab and we strapped these EEG things on their brains. And we literally <laughs> had them meet in, in a couple of different ways. One of the ways was just to meet online um, and just talk to each other through the screen. Another way was to meet in person. And we actually found that this idea of meeting over the internet, if you will, you know, using a video conferencing setup was more fatiguing to the brain that, you know, we were able to clearly observe that there was more kind of stress built up over the, the all parts of the brain, really, but over the, the cognitive functions that require you to think and make decisions and, and hold your attention, you know, the things that we would use essentially to get work done. And that was, that was somewhat surprising. You know, we never would have thought of doing this pre-pandemic just because we met in person and met online. We didn't think much about it. It was a very, very real thing. Now, here's another thing we found about digital exhaustion. This was later in the pandemic. We also felt that, well, we learned during that time that that stress and that pressure built up over time so that over the course of a day, it actually continued to amass. It was almost like putting sand on, onto you know, some sort of load. But we found that um, if in between meetings, you would actually take a break and re-engage with the real world, meaning, okay, five minutes even, you just go away and you could do everything from meditate to just go outside and look at the birds whatever whatever was different than just kind of trying to hold your attention to someone on a video screen it would reset it actually would kind of cleanse the palate if you will mentally and you could actually take some of that load away and so when we the, the coolest thing ever was for me to see these brain scans where you know if you just continue to to engage digitally the stress would build and we'd see all this red all over the heat map of you know this brain and if you would take those five minute breaks between meetings Blue was the color. Blue and greens were the color that essentially showed us, you know, that a, that a brain was operating at normal capacity, you know, with the normal load. You could see that throughout the day. It would stay in uh, essentially kind of a healthy uh, zone. And that kind of blew me away. It was like, wow, a couple of things. You know, there's a new science, it seems like, that we need to kind of become attuned to of what this is doing to our lives. And wow, there really are new skills we're going to have to learn. You know, just simply. So I started to encourage my team as an example. Hey, we're going to start every meeting at five to 10 minutes after the hour, just to give you a chance in between, almost like being in high school and you have a passing period, uh, just to give you a, a moment, you know, to reset. That's made a huge difference for us. So is digital exhaustion real? We definitely we definitely have proven that beyond the shadow of a doubt. Can you do something about it? Yeah. And it doesn't take, you know, sci fi methods. It actually just takes using the world around you. Pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. Th OK, so first of all, I did not know that. I did not know that that was the, the definition correlated to actual physical manifestation of it all. I thought it was more along the lines of, you know, just, um, you know, moving, moving the world outward beyond the office space and us always, you know, having digital in front of us, you know, sort of thing. But knowing that it actually has a physical effect, I think is fascinating. And it seems to me that, you know, as humans, we find a way to adapt much more naturally than people understand. And, I, you know, during the pandemic, I did find, you know, I just full disclosure, I found myself 
needing to get out and go for a walk or needing to go out and go. And I, and I would run, I would go out for a run in the middle of the day. And I thought, is this right? You know, I had this sort of guilt thing going that right. I was doing. Honestly, like I, there's this emotional yep. burden that's tied to it. And I think what's happened over the pandemic is we've, some of us have let ourselves sort of, you know, create some elasticity to our day, um, which I think speaks to the other part of this hybrid world that you were talking about, which is it's a question of when. The fact that, you know, we are now working at different hours in different places in some ways because we have to in order to not be exhausted, right? I need to like have that time during the day. And as a result, I may be tuning in later at night, you know, and that's okay. And you got to yep. let, you know, sort of give yourself that latitude in order to survive. But it also means that the work life has changed a bit. Yeah. I'll, you know, I'll give you one example that was, uh, it was somewhat early on in the pandemic and I realized, okay, there's something different happening here. One of the, one of the signals we got through telemetry was that uh, recorded meetings started going up in frequency. They just shot up. All of a sudden people started recording meetings. <clears throat> and we had, we had had this ability to record meetings that were happening over teams in particular uh, for a while, but it was a thing, but not really a thing that we stressed. What we started to realize was as everyone's schedules diverged in different ways, the way you just talked about Elliot, uh, we could record meetings and then people could, if they didn't have to be an active participant in the meeting, but did need to be informed about what was happening, then they could listen later. And so I had this experience where there was a long kind of strategy meeting, essentially it was a strategy review for a bunch of our products. I was double booked and so I couldn't go. The meeting was recorded. I, I pinged the people who were running the meeting and just said, hey, was there anything you know that I need to catch up on? And they said, actually, there is. There's about a 60-minute section, which is interesting, right? 60 minutes and about a four or five-hour session. 60-minute session, it starts here, it ends here. Here are the time uh, slots, and you should go listen to it. And so one day, I blocked some time, and I went out to my garage where I have a, a, a set of free weights, and I turned on the double speed, because you can listen to these readings and double speed. <laughs> And I, and I lifted weights while I listened to essentially people giving action items of things that I needed to follow up on. But the, the thing that was the coolest about that is I realized, okay, this is a different thing happening. I never would have done this before. We just exhibited a different behavior that I think will, you know, not only have some durability itself, but probably evolve over time, as you indicate, you know, we're going to learn how to use this better. And today, you know, in Teams, as an example, not only can you record meetings, you can also search for your name. You know, you can say, yeah. was I ever mentioned during this time? And that yeah. seemed like, you know, a combination of sci-fi and maybe just like curiosity pre-pandemic. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can imagine someday. And what we're seeing is, no, it's going to become a, a, a part of a mainstream part of the way we work. So I have four kids. They're all starting to become single adults at this point. As my oldest, you know, leave college and start to get into the workforce, I'm realizing, huh, they're going to have totally different habits. They're going to perceive work in a totally different way than I did, because one of the first things they'll probably hear is, hey, listen to this recorded meeting. And that was definitely not something that happened to me early on. Yeah, right. I, when I was in college, that would have not happened for sure. But I um, so let me let me ask this. So, you know, and, and this is me just wondering when. When you're working out and you're listening to the the meeting, do you think if there was a brain scan that it's red? And the reason I ask that is because you know, like, is the is the red in the brain scan scan only because you're looking at a video image, or is it because you're listening to work? You know, so I, I guess that's you know, my question is, are you really getting relief if you're still engaged in a work thought process? 
there's a lot for us to learn. Yeah, there's a lot for us to learn. Here are some of the things that in our early research we have been able to put our finger on. We do know that trying to constantly have attention on someone else's face the way that we're doing through video conferencing is not natural and that creates more stress. So that is one element of what's happening. We know that this constant engagement with digital stimuli, so things always coming in, there's a chat coming in, you know, I'm watching the cues of all the people around. I'm trying to parse, you know, their cues given their different backgrounds. My brain is actually doing a lot. We know that that creates stress. And then I would say for sure, there's something about the fact that we're just working like it's my job to get things done and there's a certain amount of stress i think that builds up in that so i think it's multi-factored is what we would say let me tell you another thing that we did that would just give you some sense of like uh, how nuanced and how interesting this world is we have this thing in teams that we call together mode uh, we used it to power the the nba's you know bubble season last year and in essence, what it does, just like Zoom and other competitors, it cuts you out from your background. You know, it does a pretty good job. It's gotten that tech has gotten better both in Teams and Zoom, other competitors, cut you out from your background and then um, to put you on a shared background. You can, it's kind of cool because you have these different places. It can be a stadium, it can be a coffee shop, you know, whatever it is. The, the most interesting thing for me that was another kind of mind blown moment for me was when we uh, strapped the EEG things onto people's heads again with together mode. And then we said, huh, I wonder if it changes. And it turned out, Elliot, it did. And what we realized, our hypothesis, we actually have to do quite a bit more here, but our hypothesis was, oh, wow, there's a lot of background processing that's going on when people have different backgrounds, you know, and so the Hollywood Squares thing. We're trying to watch their faces, you know, their eyes, their inflection, you know, everything they're doing. But our brains are actually trying to take the background noise, visual noise out. And that takes work for us, for instance. So it was contributing. We know somewhat kind of different backgrounds in Hollywood squares contribute to some of that brain stress. Never would have guessed it in a million years, you know, and so multifactored for sure. Um, I'm sure I felt some stress while I was lifting weights, but I can tell you it was a, you know, it was probably one of the most enjoyable meetings I've been to. That yeah, time. yeah, yeah, no doubt. No, and, you know, that's to your point, you know, there's a lot to learn and it's just one of those thoughts that popped in. And, you know, it's interesting you should say that about the backgrounds. Um, my, you know, and I've told this story before, my wife is a third grade teacher and second grade teacher. And, you know, over the pandemic, she gave me um two minutes of airtime with her kids. You know, she wanted me to meet them, you know, which was fun and at the time it was great. And I popped my head in and there were like 30 little faces that were looking back at me and they were all moving, you know, they, they couldn't stop moving because of course they're, you know, I don't know, eight, nine years old. And in that two minutes, I might've had a, a, a panic attack. You know, <laughs> there were so many things happening that my brain, you know, couldn't synthesize the whole deal. And I, I had immediately just tremendous empathy for my wife because, you know, she's all day, every day. But I can I can appreciate what you're saying, just kind of connecting the dots between those two. So that's that's really, really fascinating. And yeah, I can completely understand why it's fascinating to just experiment with, you know, all the different scenarios and trying to figure out where we're optimal and all this. Um, but let's let's try and tie this to that economic element that you were talking about. So, you know, we we had this notion, you know, I think what we're saying is, hey, look, you know, the workday is changing, right? And, you know, it's the, the where and the when and the how and all that's different. But what that I think that also means is when and how we transact changes, what and how we transact changes, you know, and that's the basis of the economy and things look different now. So what are the implications that you that I think you're finding? 
And I'd like to point out one other thing too, Jared. It, you mentioned the, the economic thing. Um, I live in Florida, and what's been interesting to see in Florida is folks from all around the U.S. are thinking, okay, I don't need to live in Wisconsin or Michigan or things like that. I can do my job mobile now. And we've seen a really influx of people looking for homes and moving to Florida, for example, because they now can work at home. Um, I've got a few younger people on my team and um, they, I met with them just last week and they mentioned to me, they said, if I have to go to an office again, I'm quitting, right? Right. I, I'm looking for a, a place where I can work from home and work mobile. So I just wanted to throw that in because to me, those are two really interesting aspects of where we come from, you know, in the last, uh, you know, two years. All right. So, man, there's so many places we could go. So I'll just I'll start, <laughs> set the table broadly. Maybe I'll do that. I'll set the table broadly and, and then uh, pick a couple places to go and you guys can take me wherever you want to. Um, at least three things that I'll lay down for us to pick up at various times. First, the people who, who left the office for remote work in 2020 are not the same people that are returning in 2021. What I mean by that is over the course of the, the pandemic, uh, we have really changed. Attitudes have changed. Uh, how we think about what's important has changed. You know, we are really different people. In fact, uh, one of the most fascinating things about the research for me is that it shows that the impact the pandemic has had is every bit as big as one of the large kind of world events that we would have studied from the 20th, from 20th century history, uh, like the Great Depression or one of the world wars or the Cold War, it's had that impact on people's psyche over the course of 15, 18 months. I did not expect that. I wasn't ready for that. And I want to come back to that in a moment, but that's one thing that I'll put on the table is like, wow, people changed and we have to recognize that. Second thing, closely related, we are now experiencing a demand shock in the economy that is bigger than anything we have felt since the end of World War II. And that's a really important point to make. And what I mean by that is during, during the course of the pandemic, people didn't go out. What that meant is they saved. Uh, it also meant that they had pent up demand for the things that they liked and wanted to do, whether that was going to pizza parlors or traveling. There is a tremendous pent up demand surge that we are starting to feel. And you're seeing that in the numbers today in several publications, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal. We got the first reports that finally in the U.S. the economy is now bigger than pre-pandemic and it's hot it's really growing. There's a lot of demand. That's interesting. So that would be the second thing I'll come back to is this demand shock. And then the third thing that I would say, if we're talking economics, would be the factors of production. You know, when you think of production, there's the essentially the supply side of an economy. And that has changed in pretty tremendous ways. Uh, just as a simple example, you know, one of the factors of production essentially ends up being land or real estate. Uh, the amount of land or real estate required and where you require it has, has changed for many organizations, many companies over the course of this pandemic. And they're just starting to assess, you know, how much office space do we need? What would it be used for? Uh, how do we interact with our customers, you know, showrooms, et cetera? That's not to say physicality won't be important. It will be, but it has changed in pretty dramatic ways. So I think setting the table, those are three things economically that have happened to us. I'll, I'll pick the first one back up for just a moment and talk a little bit about that. We are definitely seeing what's being covered in the press uh, today um, as something referred to as the great resignation. And when we did a, a study 
couple of months ago, we had this uh, this big study that we did called the Work Trends Index. We went out and surveyed over 30,000 people in 31 countries. So we we're trying to be very global in nature and just try to understand their attitudes. What had changed over the course of the pandemic? And there were two, two things that really popped for me as we were looking at the data. One of the data points was that 41% of those people said that uh, over the course of this, this next year, they expected that they would change their employer, 41%. It was pretty incredible. We had never, I had never, you know, in surveying people about their kind of employment, I had never seen a number like that. And so it, it started to get us to scratch our heads. This was before we saw a lot of that manifest itself in the news. Then the second thing that we saw is related, Bob, to what you said, 47% of people. So just take that as like, just think half, half of the people roughly said that they expected they were going to change where they lived geographically. In other words, they were going to move as a result of what had happened in the pandemic and the flexible work options that they now expected from employers. Meaning, and, and we definitely heard uh, different demographics, including young demographics tell us, look, if my employer doesn't offer flexible work options, I'm out, like I'll just go find another employer. Now in an economy that's in a downturn, you can't really do that. You know, beggars can't be choosers. But in an economy, when you have the biggest demand shock since World War II, uh, we, the, the employees are in charge. Power has moved to them. And they have been able to say, hey, you know what? Like, if you're not going to offer that for me, love it. I know that you think you're a big guy or a big gal, but that's okay. Not for me. I'm going to go find somebody else. And that that alone, that dynamic of people changing, and then this kind of demand shock is really, I think, setting us uh, on this course. And we can talk in just a minute about other expectations that I think will, you know, will really ripple across the economy. But so fascinating, right? Like, it's just like so much is happening all as a result of something I never would have predicted. You know, when we went home last March, I never would have predicted these things. And yet they make sense now, you know, and the interplay I think is what's going to be very fascinating over the course of the next few years. Yeah, no, 100% agree. And and where I find myself um, spending time thinking about this is, the, you know, I think of it as a pendulum a bit, you know, in the sense that you you brought up the beggars can't be choosers component. And I, and I think that's at play absolutely here you know in the sense that i think this notion of employers responding to employees demands from a hybrid perspective is very much the result of needing good employees yeah you know and as a result there's going to be this attentiveness to that thought process right um at the expense of commercial real estate you know so if you're in the in the, the commercial real estate business you're you know, you're wondering how to reinvent yourself. You're wondering when and how people are going to come back to being together and why and when. And is it when the economy dips into a recession? You know, will that be when commercial real estate comes back? Because employers will say, you know what? No, I, I want people together. I don't know. You know, maybe maybe that's not true. Maybe that won't be the catalyst. But, you know, if you if you, you know, I guess and that has brought me to this question, the sense that if you think about commercial real estate, or this notion of when it makes more sense to have people together versus remote. What are we seeing? When when is it that employers are today saying, no, we have to be together? You know, what are those models that are in place still where that's that's still a reality? Well, I think what I'm observing across the world um, is that there is a spectrum. You know, on on one side of the spectrum are essentially financial services, some financial services companies who, you know, if you go down to Manhattan today, you will definitely see named named banks saying you must be in the office. And and the big bosses of those banks have said, no, nope, there is a there is a not only a tradition 
so much, I think some of the words that have been used, there's so much you, you can only learn through osmosis, meaning being there with someone. That's their belief. That's the, the way they think it's going to go. That's one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum, you end up seeing uh, mostly tech companies, I would say, who have said, no, you know what? We are office-less. We don't even need the office anymore. Uh, we're not going to have one. Uh, we're just going to be all remote. And if we need to get together, fine, we'll find a place that we can do that, but we don't need to have offices. And I would say, you know, the mass, vast majority you expect are going to be somewhere in between. At Microsoft, combination of our, our perspective, like our just our point of view and the research would point us to a little bit more balance where we would say being in person does lend, uh, does help build, uh, as an example, social capital and trust and real relationships. You know, the fact, for instance, that you and Bob could get together, I think is really important. Being able to see each other and spend some time together, super important. But I think increasingly the pattern that we'll see is that you don't have to do that all day, every day. And in fact, we'll realize, oh yeah, you know, the, the idea of building relationships and in some cases using in-person interactions to do things that um, are particularly high value for what in-person can deliver. So creative work, for instance, brainstorming, bouncing off each other, really kind of working towards an, uh, an unknown solution in a, in a difficult and abstract kind of problem space. Like those are all things that the research so far shows us, yeah, are quite, quite good to do in person. But beyond that, I think that people will be looking for new patterns to help them work and to respond to something that you said previously. I think what's going to happen is in the meantime, we're going to make so many structural changes to the way our organizations work that we won't be able to go back. I'll just give you a simple example. Over the course of the pandemic, pre-pandemic at Microsoft, you know, in, in many what we call many product groups, they were very Redmond centric, meaning you had to kind of be here to be involved in the meeting and make the decisions. You could live someplace else. It wasn't very common. It just wasn't a pattern. Well, during the pandemic, we decided we were going to embrace this idea of flexible work and we embraced this idea of, of tapping into new talent pools that we previously hadn't been able to get into. And one of those that I was particularly interested in was was Atlanta and we started to do some hiring in Atlanta. Now my team has folks in Atlanta, fantastically um, talented people. Longley McKelvey is a, a recent hire that just helped me launch uh, the cloud PC and Windows 365, done incredible work. She lives in Atlanta. She has no desire to move to Seattle. Love Seattle, not gonna move to Seattle. And she's now on, on my leadership team. I didn't have remote people previously. So all of a sudden, you know, even as we go back, we will never be the same. And I'll never be in a place where I say, I want everybody in the office because Wangui and several people on the team who live in Atlanta will never be in the office. And I think those structural changes will not only linger with us, but they will be important. So we're excited about uh, what this does, but it does have kind of long lasting effects. But the biggest thing I'll say is to go back to what you said earlier, people are incredibly adaptable. They know how to adapt. And that is a skill that humans, I think we underplay in humans all the time. Like we just adapt so well. And I think what, what happened over the 15 to 18 months is we realized, wait a second, the world did not stop spinning. In fact, some things got better. Uh, could we have the best of both worlds? And that is what younger employees are searching for, I think, and what forward thinking organizations will really pursue is, I think we can, you know, I think we can have the best of both worlds here. Yeah, yeah, no, I. Completely agree. Fascinating stuff. The, you know, it's interesting to me as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, what pulls us back into the office. And a lot of that conversation was tied to employee motivation and so forth. But we never talked about, 
security or vulnerability to a vaccine, you know, vulnerability to a virus or anything like that. That is no longer in the frontal lobe. You know what I mean? We're not talking about it right now, but it's still true. You know, like that's that's still a facet there. Um, and I do know that we've made really great strides collectively to protect against that scenario. You know, when you get into an on-premise environment, there's things that we can do today to insulate ourselves a bit so that, you know, we're not as vulnerable to something like a COVID as we were before. And I think that's part of the equation too, you know, protecting our on-premise environment is part of the hybrid workplace story, I think. Oh, 100%, yeah. And what many companies are wrestling with, and we've just seen some news on that this week, is this idea of you know how far does that protection go and what will we do? We saw Google and Facebook just announced earlier this week that they will require vaccinations for people to work in office. I think lots of companies are considering that. You know, it is a um, you know you have to kind of take into account essentially, I would say, the community in which you're operating when you do that, and you know, of course, the laws and the community sentiment and things like that. But I think my guess is, as you indicated, we'll see a bit more of this over time because what organizations are trying to do is to create a sense of security, you know, health and security. You can come safely. Don't be afraid, you know, and so they're they're just doing their best to really understand what people value and what they'd be willing to accept and what they would support. So lots of things yet to work out. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, I have another question, but I feel as if I have hogged the mic. And you have a little bit. Guys. I'm just going to be honest with you, Elliot. You've been you've hogged the mic a little bit today. That's I'm all right. So, That's I'm okay. So sorry. I'm I'm a mic hog, and I will now be quiet. Okay. okay. Great. So, Jared, I wanted to double click on something you mentioned earlier about the workday being longer, and I, I'm I'm interested in that because I'm wondering if it's different or is it truly longer, right? Because um, me being an ex-Microsoft employee, I've been mobile for a long time and, and now with Insight, but I've been very used to the what it's like working from home and the challenges. And I was just telling Elliot before this, I had a dishwasher just delivered. He was supposed to be here you know, um, this afternoon and he calls me at nine and said, I'm here. Right. So, right. I had to work around that and I'm worried that I wouldn't, was going to be late for this. So when, when you have those work life challenges, as you were mentioning, the two hour uh, haircut, do you think it's just different and people are working eight or more hours a day, but they just do it at their own pace or, you know, when they want to? Or do you really see the work, the eight hour work day going to, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours? Two things we see, Bob. Um... During the pandemic, based on our research, we actually did see people work longer. Let me tell you a little bit about that. The, okay. the research that we did first gave us a, an indication that was true through signal that we saw through telemetry, essentially, in an aggregated way. So we didn't really know like what's going on. When we went down and started to ask people, hey, what's going on? Are you actually working longer or what's, what's happening? Um, what we discovered was uh, was kind of a fear-driven response to what was going on. And what, what people would say to us when they were willing to open up is they would say, you know what, to be honest with you, I'm a little worried. My boss can't see me working. And, you know, there's a little bit of an uncertain time. I want my boss to know I'm working. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason that we started to tap into this is we saw that the size of meetings started to grow, meaning the number of people who were attending meetings started to grow. And we were like, what is going on? And when we would ask, they would say, I don't know, A, I'm, there's a little bit of FOMO. I'm just afraid I'm going to miss out on something. There is no more hall, no more water cooler, no more break room. So I can't quite right. tell the 
gestalt, if you will, of you know where I'm working. And B, like, look, Miss Miss Boss, like I she doesn't know if I'm working. Like I just want her to know I'm here. Hey, I'm here. I'm working. See. And there was an elongation of hours that happened as a result of that fear. Now that happens during times of uncertainty when people are less comfortable. We're starting to get into a pattern that's much more comfortable now. And I would say as, as a result, we're seeing a bit of that fear dry up. We're not seeing people feel like they have to justify as much any longer that yes, I'm working. In fact, most companies would say that productivity stayed at least the same and in some cases increased. And at Microsoft, as an example, we saw productivity in some cases go up. Our developers were more productive when they didn't have interruptions, as an example. So, you know, there are benefits, but I do believe, Bob, then, then what we're going to see is we're going to see just a change in the workday. And in particular, one thing we haven't quite, you know, nailed as clearly as, as you may hear me do it externally with people is we have started to say, Hey, one of the most important ways in which production has changed, meaning employers, is they've got to now worry about the well-being of their of their employees. Like if you want to sustainably perform as an organization, you can't burn your people out. So you've got to help them in this new world, what I called uh, externally the shapeless workday. You know, there's almost no shape to it. There's no commute to kind of get you there in the morning. There's no commute to kind of give you a buffer on the way home. So now you've got to create your own shape, your own structure to the workday. And we think employers are going to want to help. They're going to want to uh, help provide that type of employee experience. But ultimately, to get to your question, Bob, I think it will settle down. I think most employers would be wise to not overwork. You can't redline your people all the time. And so they're going to actually encourage their employees to find kind of a bit of a, a new equilibrium for themselves. That's that's great because we, we were actually just talking about this week how commuting is could be seen as wasted time or unproductive on, on time, right? If you're commuting an hour into work and an hour a day, that's two hours where you're not doing anything. But then on the other hand, maybe that's giving your mind a break, right? And you don't have to to be thinking about work 24-7 and, and that gives you some, some downtime, if you will. So it's really interesting how some of that kind of levels out as well. Yeah, indeed. You know, we uh, here's another mind mind blown moment for all of us. You know, one of the new features we introduced during the pandemic was was called a virtual commute. No joke. And the idea was that you know, again, the research showed that without a commute, it was uh, and this idea of trying to context switch so quickly, you know, from work to home, not working, creating stress for people, and having a little bit of time to ramp up into a workday and ramp down out of a workday actually made you more productive like the research showed like measurably more productive based on self-reporting so you know we didn't go in and do task-based work but based on self-reporting people said wow that made a difference so who knew we'd want to have that buffer we didn't have to necessarily be in a car for it but the virtual commute was something again i never would have guessed that that would have been right. something we would have done right so jared I, I really have to give you a compliment because um, you know, I feel like as a consumer, and of course, I was a Microsoft employee for a long time as well, but, you know, sometimes you feel like large companies don't do research, right? And that they don't get into uh, the brain of the consumer and are not listening and not doing research studies. I, I think it was Henry Ford that said, right, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses, right? Um, you know, and I, I just have to to compliment you on that. But with, with the research you do, and you know, you talk about the work trend index, that is some great information. How are you then taking that information and that really turning into or helping the current Microsoft product stack to be better in the future and kind of fit today's needs? 
this has been a bit of a seminal moment for us, an inflection point. You know, in particular, if I zoom in on one product, Teams, it was a product that had a lot of promise as the pandemic hit last year, but yes. wasn't quite ready for prime time. You know, we hadn't prioritized video. We actually had been a chat-based workspace as our as our the way we positioned it, the way we developed it, video was there. And you know, what we have ended up creating here over the course of, of this 15, 18 month period has been a new process that allows us to go out, understand what's happening, do that both through market research, but also you hear me talking a little bit about what we call Microsoft research. It's a group within within the company that not only does kind of market research, but brings people in and says, hey, strap this on your head and let's do different things, let's do experiments. So real, really interesting, I think, science-based research. And then we're feeding that directly into you know, the product group and we process it there and ideate and come up with, with ideas. I mentioned earlier, uh, as an example, together mode totally came out of the work you know that that brought together multidisciplinary research. Uh, I talked a little bit about virtual commute. That was another one. You know, as we looked at what was happening to people. Just recently, we introduced something called front row, which is a new meeting layout where we actually say, hey, as we go back to the the workplace, we actually think you need to reconfigure your conference rooms. You have to plan for the people who aren't in the room, and that's going to mean that you start to face a big wall so that we can, you know, throw people up there life size, and you can interact with them no matter where where they are in the world. So there's a lot of work going on. I'm I am particularly proud of that Teams group. You know, they have added more than 300 new features and not little font size changes you know 300 real features over the course of the pandemic based on you know learning as we go and i i think this is a, a great example of a pattern that will stick with us that's beautiful it's beautiful all right eb that's what okay. i had <laughs> okay my last question and then you know i again great conversation so one of the you know one of the things that i've observed over you know i, I think we've all observed over the last couple of years is the social construct, I think, is in a state of inflection too, you know, in the sense that I think how we, you know, interact with each other as human beings, I think is taking a hit, um, you know, and I was thinking about this most recently, you know, as we were flying again, and we were back on the plane, I found myself, you know, I'm in front of people, strangers again, and I'm being overly polite. You know, I'm overly polite in front of all these people, sometimes because I have a mask on, you know, I mean, I, I felt as if I had this need to be overly polite. And it occurred to me that, you know, that the reason we are polite is to demonstrate, there's lots of reasons, but one reason I think is to demonstrate mutual respect for each other, to establish social norms. It's, it's part of our interaction within society. And I worry that this notion of being detached or decoupled from society through remote, not necessarily hybrid, but remote, has created this, you know, crumpling, crumbling of social norms and constructs, you know, how we interact with people. That's a concern I've had. And then I've kind of coupled that with this blending of what is the work life and home life, you know, in the sense that what what we as we've been talking about the work the, it's no longer the work day and then the time at home you know it's no longer the same it's no longer one place i leave work there and i put my hat on and i'm at home and i interact it's not like that anymore it's all blended and then i found myself and i'm on linkedin this is all like in the last 24 hours i'm on linkedin and i'm i'm observing a thread which is much more of a you know, a Facebook type thread, if you know what I'm saying. It was much more of a social. Somebody had posted something about their kid and then there was all this commentary. And I thought, 
you know, gosh, I wish that wasn't on LinkedIn because LinkedIn has always been this sort of like sacrosanct area for business dialogue, but that seems to be degrading as well. And then it occurred to me, well, why wouldn't it? Because, you know, today we're in this sort of weaving all over the place. And it, it worries me that we've, we're losing these social constructs within this hybrid environment. And, and I'm, I know that's sort of planting a bomb, you know, on the table, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, like it, it seems to me that that's an uncharted territory for us to, to think about, you know, like how do we reestablish social norms in a hybrid environment? And I don't think there's an answer to it, but I'm very curious to get your thoughts. The research we've done here in this case based on um, telemetry has been really insightful, Elliot. So I'll tell you what we know. <clears throat> Basically, there, there is a concept that was discovered by Research Wake prior to the pandemic, you know, decades ago, that's called weak ties that bind. It is this idea that um, we often have very strong relationships with people that we work with often. But um, so there's kind of like this almost insular nature to a team or to a group of people that's really, you know, seeing each other a lot but that it is the weak ties between those teams that make an organization, whether that be society or a company, kind of hang together, you know, gel. And, and during the course of the pandemic, what we saw is that the, the strong ties became stronger. The people we saw every day, you know, if Elliot and Bob saw each other every day, those became stronger. We kind of felt like we were hanging on to each other, like you were on a life raft. And so those relationships felt stronger and the, the communication, you know, actually went up but the weak ties almost got cut off. We stopped interacting with people that were kind of outside of our day-to-day, -day, you know, day-to-day -day kind of patterns and, and interaction spheres. And so you are right. What that means is that we are more siloed, kind of more cut off from the rest of whether it be our firm or the rest of society. And there's some work for us to do there. So we 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 don't yet have an amazing feature that fixes this one. <laughs> you know, we we do think that pattern-wise, what we're gonna have to learn to do is as we move into much more of a hybrid world to really uh, get ourselves to get out of our normal patterns to reestablish those weak ties you know and, and we are encouraging organizations firms companies to really be thinking about how do you reestablish the social fabric you know your teams got stronger you know that's great you've never had stronger teams with with in most cases with more camaraderie and more of a team spirit but you need that between teams you need that between functions you have to have marketing speaking with sales you have to have r d working with customers that's the type of work you need to do now so you you have definitely put your finger on something that will be a challenge i'll leave you with one last hopeful thought though Boy, are we uh, we are enthusiastic. We are uh, we we see incredible opportunity in front of us because if I go back to something I said earlier, we just think that there's an opportunity for the best of both worlds. Meaning, isn't it great that we learned that 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 we need each other? Isn't it great that we deepen those relationships? Now we just need to teach each other that we've also got to reach out to these other groups, and that that can happen across a whole bunch of different dimensions. We can have the best of both worlds. But we can only have it if we are deliberate. And frankly, we would also say somewhat science-based, you know, follow the science on this one so that we can learn together as we go what's going to work. That, that leads us to a brighter future. That leads us to a lot of uh, enthusiasm and hope. If we just let this play out, however, I don't think it's going to be as <laughs> hopeful. It's not going to play out on its own naturally that way. So we need to inject some energy and some focus. Yeah, fantastic. Really, really Great. good thoughts. Um, I, Bob, I think we've had a tremendous discussion today. Yeah, great conversation. Thank you, Jared, for the time today. Really my, appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. And I really. guess as we close up, I'll ask our subscribers, our users to 
share share the word of two guys in the cloud get your friends to subscribe and listen um, great episode today so thanks again jared thank you thank you